I got my ashes on my head and then went to bed and washed them off. So, uh, this, we're in the season of Lent going toward Easter. Seems unusual that we should be this place this year so quick, so fast. Springtime is here. Well, today I was given a topic to talk on for a few minutes, uh, about the second coming of Jesus. Of course, that's a, a broad, broad, larger subject than anybody could tackle in 30 minutes, but we can tackle it by zeroing in on what the word means and where it comes from and then find a text that gives some support to that and then work our way through it. That's the way I'm going to handle it with you this morning. Uh, to begin, let us uh, have a prayer together. Let us pray. Oh God, our Deliverer, you led your people of old through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide now the people of your church that following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Well, not ignoring the season of Lent, there's a hymn, which is a, a, a kind of a hymn that is always sung, usually in the first Sundays of Lent or right around the time of the Ash Wednesday service. The ashes, the significant thing about them is the preacher anoints you and he says, remember, you are dust and to dust you will return. And that's, that's powerful for where we're going today because to talk about the second coming of Jesus, it requires a, a facing up to your mortality as well as your immortality with Jesus. Uh, but th- th- there's a hymn I want to read to you called Lord Throughout These 40 Days, or Lent's 40 Days until Easter. Lord, who throughout these 40 days for us did fast and pray, teach us with thee to mourn our sins and close by thee to stay. As thou with Satan didst contend and didst victory win, O oh, give us strength in thee to fight, in thee to conquer sin. As thou didst hunger, bear, and thirst, so teach us, gracious Lord, to die to self and chiefly live by thy most holy word. And through these days of penitence, and though thy passion tied, yea, evermore, in life and death, Jesus with us abide. Abide with us that so this life of suffering overpassed, an Easter of unending joy, we may attain at last. Amen to the hymn. A lady named Claudia Herneman, she was a, a, a hymn writer in the middle of the 19th century, wrote a lot of hymns, but this one, has lasted through the years as a favorite of the church. 
Well, the uh, thinking of the second coming of Jesus, you, in theological terms, one is thinking about what they call eschatology. It's uh, the study, ology means study, the esch means the end times, uh, the end of things. What, what is the end of this world? Uh, depending upon how you see the end, uh, has some bearing on, on how you live your life. That's, that's, that's been the Christian, uh, attitude for ages. That, that life means more if you have in front of you the hope and the belief that there will be an end in which the Lord Jesus will make an appearance a second time. And it's a, and now, now, with that said, the eschatology of this becomes written material throughout the Bible, throughout tradition, throughout time. People have painted pictures of this in different ways, both intellectually and on, and in, in art, in the art world. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel depicts the second coming of Jesus, and he's a very muscular figure walking among angels in bare feet coming into this world. And uh, Michelangelo saw him that way as he was lying upside down painting the ceiling. Of the, if you ever get to Rome, you'll want to see that. That's a beautiful thing to see. But um, the, as I was saying, the um, eschatological thing sort of changes into what is called apocalyptics, apocalypticism. Once you determine what you're going to say it looks like and what it's going to be like, what you say and write down has become apocalyptic literature. I don't care how smart you are. If you write about that stuff, it's going to be a form of apocalyptic literature. Now, for you and me, that seems, well, I guess that makes sense. But we have to remember that apocalyptic literature was around before Jesus was uh, walked in the world. He, he had uh, prophets and Old Testament people like Daniel is full of apocalyptic stuff. You know it as soon as you hit it because if you're reading along, you could be reading along and all of a sudden you'll come on a goat with eight horns. You know? <laughs> or you'll come up on something that just makes you chuckle and say, what in the world is that, is that all about? Where did that come from? It comes from, frankly, the vision that someone has of the end. It's an eschatological vision that becomes apocalyptic literature right in front of you. John does it with Revelation. A lot of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. You've got God with curly wool hair. You've got a a strange thing, but that's that is the result of apocalyptic literature. Now, I'm not saying any of it's bad. I'm not saying it's necessarily false. It ain't true. It ought to be. It's the kind of thing that is there for our reading to inspire us at the moment we read it. So that there's not to denigrate any apocalyptic literature. You know, we did that for a long time until we discovered there by the uh, 
in, in, in a little area called Qumran, down by the Dead Sea in Israel, there was a a place there where they had some monks and they had a monastery. Some think that John the Baptist might have been there for a while, but in any regard, the Romans were always oppressing them and scaring them to death and all. So they took their literature and put it in little jars and stuck it up on the side of a mountain in the caves up there. You had to get a rope to go down to where the cave was to enter it. Well, somebody did and found in there these jars full of these scrolls. And when they rolled them out and opened them up, what did they see? You guessed it, apocalyptic literature from the time of Jesus. In fact, some of it sounded very much like the Gospels. That is, that is, they were already writing about it before even, even Jesus and John had talked about it. So it was a powerful thing. And when, when it starts, it has all kinds of things in it. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a chunk of it in chapter 24, 25. That, you know, blood and the moon returned to blood and all this sort of thing. That's apocalyptic literature. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to step aside from that, having looked at that. And we're going to say, what about the second coming of Jesus in the middle of all that stuff? What does it have for us? Well, the Greek word for that is parousia. Parousia. It's the... It means presence, the presence, parousia. I can't see your presence this morning, but I know you're there. I know you're there. And the parousia is what is going to happen when Jesus comes again. He's going to be present with us in a real, very, very new, fresh way. I submit to you that it's going to be a, a challenging new way when his comes in his second coming, I don't have any pictures for you to 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 make that uh, exciting. But I do know that people have talked about it intelligently for a long, long time. Uh, this idea of the parousia or the second coming of the Lord has just made scholars give their lives over to it. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, you you was a, a theologian who wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. He believed that Jesus was a Jew, we, we know that, but that Jesus was an apocalyptic Jew. In other words, a lot of what Jesus in his parables, parables and things stressed the, the, the eminence of the second coming or the eschatological end of things. He talked about sheep and goats and how they would be separated, you know, that thing there, that uh, that, that parousia. Uh, in other words, when he comes, the sheep are going to be separated from the goats. And Oh, my. Well, Schweitzer wrote a lot about that. Others, too. But him in particular, I think about it because he was an old man. He was 90 years old. And he always had this wonderful call of God on his life. He was a, could play a concert pianist, and he w- would do that, and then he would go to Africa and started a a, a mission there in his nineties now. I mean, spring chicken spry. Some say maybe because of his his love of the Lord and, and his, his his desire to see the parousia. I, I I think that's something to think about. Well, the text that I chose to think about comes from Colossians. You, you'd think that's a strange place, but 
Colossians is a high Christology, real, real, real high. It's so high, in fact, that it, it lets out the air of the parousia in little sentences as it begins things. In the third chapter of the book of Colossians, Colossians, I'm going to read from the Living Bible here. Chapter 3, verse 1, Colossians. Since you became alive again, so to speak, when Christ arose from the dead, now set your sights on the rich treasures and joys of heaven, where he sits beside God in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. You should have as little desire for this world as a dead person does. Your real life is in heaven with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our real life, comes back again, I want to stop this step aside for a minute and call your attention to what St. Paul just said. And when Christ, who is our real life, comes back again, see, all right, is a parousia right here in the heart of St. Paul. St. Paul, you will shine with him and share all his glories, period. Isn't that the strangest thing? See, this is material much older than the Gospels. They're tucked in there. And look at that. We're going to shine with him and share. Shine and share in all his glories. Away then, he says, with sinful earthly things, deaden the evil desires lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and shameful desires. Don't worship the good things of life. For that is idolatry. God's terrible anger is upon those who do such things. You used to do them when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to cast off and throw away all these rotten garments of anger, hatred, cursing, dirty language. Don't tell lies to each other. It was your old life with all its wickedness that did that sort of thing, now it is dead and gone. You are living a brand new kind of life that is continually learning more and more of what is right and trying constantly to be more and more like Christ who created this new life within you. In this new life, one's nationality or race or education or Social position is unimportant. These things mean nothing. Whether a person has Christ is what matters. And he's equally available to all. Since you have been chosen by God, who has given you this new kind of life, and because of his deep love and concern for you, you should practice tender-hearted mercy, kindness to others. Don't worry about making a good impression on them, but be ready to suffer quietly and patiently. Be gentle and ready to forgive. Never hold a grudge 
Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Most of all, let love guide your life, for then the whole church will stay together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of heart, which comes from Christ, be always present in your hearts and lives. For this is your responsibility and a privilege as members of his body. Be thankful. Period. End of reading. This section right in here proposes something that we need to keep right up alongside the the, the beauties and the shining of the parousia is the moral obligation that is implicit in the parousia. Jesus is coming again. We need to be ready for that to happen. You may say, well, my goodness, I cannot be ready for something like that. And by the way, preacher, if I did this stuff in here, I would be so heavenly minded that I would be of no earthly good, to be frank with you. If all the stuff that says in here is so bad, and I've done all that other bad stuff, I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, you see, only by becoming heavenly minded do we become of any earthly good. That's, that's how you, that tricks around. To show you the importance of being heavenly. How can you be heavenly minded if you declare that that would make you no earthly good? That's false. The most wonderful people on the face of this little old planet are people whose mind is set on Christ, who think of heavenly beautiful things like nothing other than the parousia, the coming of Jesus. Well, if you just sit around and don't do anything, you'll become what is called the the the, the priestly sins. That is, you 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 become lustful, slothful, and gluttonous. That's what you, a sinful preacher is full of lust, for sure, full of laziness, for sure, and eat anything around. Eat up, eat you at a house and home. That's what that's what gluttony will do. That's the sins, religious sins. We have to get over that. We have to get beyond that. To be heavenly minded in the, and be prepared. The moral virtue of this Colossians is a real presence of the Holy Spirit pushing into the world now. You see, some scholars believe in what's called the real presence. That is that Jesus has done all the coming into this world he's going to do. And the second coming has already happened. And it, it is the Holy Ghost. The Anglicans believe it, the Catholics believe it, the Roman Catholics believe it, that the second coming is the Holy Ghost. That, that's what that is. That's, that's why we need the, the Holy Ghost so badly. That's why the parousia is in that power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know whether you believe that, but I thought I would mention it to you as we stumbled across it and walked over it. John Wesley was, uh, uh, 
looking carefully at the people of his day and the church of his day, and he was challenging the church the same way that Paul is challenging this Colossian community from the jail where he is. He is reminding them of the fact that they need Jesus and to, to focus their thoughts on the parousia of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. However Jesus comes, Jesus has to come into your life and be a real presence. Uh, real presence in the Eucharist. The preacher talks about the real presence. So if the, if the presence is in the Eucharist, then in a transformed way, then the second coming of the parousia is always in the Eucharist. You can experience it on Sunday morning in the Eucharist. That's another 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 look at the parousia I thought we'd walk over this morning. Now, look at the element of Wesley. He said that the great dangers of the church, and that was the danger of this one, was that it was believing everything that came along. It was, if you brought a new God to town, they were grateful for it. They just synchronized it into whatever it was they were doing. And so they were accepting Jesus on the basis of the fact that all they had to do was just accept him. They didn't have to do anything in consequence of receiving him. But you and I know that's a false, false God. That's an idolatrous God. If we think that we are going to just do nothing except except accept Jesus then and be justified by Jesus, what a mess because we're, we're not sanctified. We're not holy. The Holy Spirit coming in power is to create a condition of holiness in people and righteousness in people. And Paul lays it out there for you. The kinds of righteousness that he's talking about is not necessarily the kind we want to hear today. We'd better hear about a righteousness about justice. We want to hear a righteousness about equality. We want to, we want, we want people to, 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 to be inclusive. We, we, we want that. That's anything other than that is a sin. We want diversity. We need that so bad we don't know what to do. But that can be a false God and not be Jesus. People can be good at all those worldly, earthly things. And throw Jesus right out the back door. I'm telling you, they'll do it. They'll do it because they do not see the necessity of living like Jesus, of walking like Jesus, of being like Jesus. Well, if we look back at that text, it reminds us not to have too much affection for the things of this world. Now, that what does that affection mean? In the King James Version, you don't have much affection for this world. In other words, don't be so mentally disposed toward this world. Don't, don't, don't let your mind be always thinking about the things of this age and this world. And, and it's hard not to do it because we live in anxious times. You know, there's always, always something going on. Politics, we can get involved in that. You know, world peace, we can get, get all nuts about that. And, but at the same time, at the same time, please remember that Jesus is Lord. See, don't 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 forget that. Uh, remember that you're dust, and to dust you're going to return. Don't don't fail to remember that. And your life, your life, that the life that that Paul is talking about is two kinds of life: as a biological life and a loving, wonderful spiritual life in Jesus. I don't want that. That old biological life is going. 
going to pass. It's going to be over. It's going to end. And then what is left is the life in God. The Greeks even have two different words for it. That's bio for, for ordinary just living. And then there's zoo. Z-O-O, which, which we call a zoo. The world is a zoo with Jesus. It's wonderful. It's full of life and power. Well, the, 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 the sin that all these sins that he mentions comes down to basically one word. The word is craving, whether it's sexual, lust, or, 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 or inordinate affections, or uncleanliness, or fornicating, or covetousness, or even idolatry. It all comes down to craving something you don't have. Just not learning how to be content in Jesus. Paul said, I've learned all things to be content and not to have an inordinate affection for the things of this world. If you do, you are a rebel because the Lord wants you in to remember who you are and that you belong to him and that there's a possibility that even you and me can be regenerated. And that, that's a word. You don't hear much about that, about that today. But that's just as important a word, biblical words, you'll ever find anywhere. The Holy Spirit comes not just to save you or bless you, but to regenerate you into the holy thing that God has called you to be. Oh, and, and the, I just want to wrap this up by saying, uh, it, 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 to remember, that it's better to be kind than it is to be right. I think that sums up what Paul is saying. And you might want to remember it. It is better to be kind than it is to be right. I can be right about everything and all the time and make people sick listening to my opinion about how right I am when what I really need to do is to be kind and shut up and listen to others for a while. Well, I don't want to hold you up. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you and I know you have many things you want to do in the season of Lent. But I hope you've heard a little bit of, have a little bit of idea better about the parousia. The Bible is full of it. You're full of it all through. But remember, God loves you and God wants to change your life and make you a better person. That, that's the ticket right there. Make you a better person. And, and finally, it's better to be kind than it is to be right. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day. In Jesus' name, Amen.